The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Well, hey there, friend. Glad to have you as always. It's National Shop Online for Groceries Day, have you heard? So for all you out there who can afford to buy groceries, congratulations. And for everyone else, it's National Play in the Sand Day. The people rejoice, I'm sure. Ah, sorry, Chester, we're fresh out of sand. Maybe you could go play in the mud or something. See that? You gotta be resourceful. Well, come on in, friend. We'll make the best of it. Hmm. Well, that's better. Hey, let me remind y'all that my Patreon page is up and running. If you've ever wanted to support me or what I do, or just to feed Chester, go sign up and become a patron. That'll give you access to extra narrations that I've done. And you can listen to Jeff Sturdivant, Paul McSorley, and myself being complete idiots. So what are you waiting for? Patreon.com forward slash Drew Blood. Become a patron, friend. Alright, moving on. In any case, it's also our second Grey Walker and Luciano Moreno day. So there's still cause for celebration. Alright, smoke them if you got them and drink those glasses to the bottom, y'all. Cause old Drew Blood has two goodens for you. Oh, hey. I didn't see you there. You know, Drew Blood's Dark Tales is only one of the many shows on this network you could be listening to. We hope you'll subscribe to our entire lineup, including Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, Fear from the Heartland, and Horror Hill. All available on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Also, visit simplyscarypodcast.com to become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you get our entire catalog ad-free and available to download or stream. A bargain. And now, back to the show. 
For our first one tonight, we welcome back the very talented Luciano Moreno, whom you might remember from his first story, The Last Parade Around Here. In this one, we join a photographer seeking to capture a most fiendish photo. So without further delay, I give you, from author Luciano Moreno, Feel the Frame. Monsters were more common in those days. Outlaws, killers, and thieves of all kind stalked the cities and plains of the youthful republic with alarming regularity. Swiftly as law and order was being brought to the newly settled wilds of the West, for many looking to reside and conduct business there, it wasn't happening quickly enough. Preceded in the collective imagination by their exaggerated and romanticized reputations, the era's criminals became nearly mythical figures. A strange breed of legend, able to escape justice and act without consequence. They were finally made mortal, only by more accurate depiction. They sneered smiled and glowered at potential victims from wanted posters and newspapers. Caged within the moment they were caught by the photographer's skill. All manner of atrocity there to be read in their unblinking eyes, but revealed at last to be no more than men. Men with crooked noses, bald heads, fat bellies, bad teeth. Awful men, yes, and very dangerous, but no more mysterious than mad dogs, and just as easily put down upon capture. There is power in seeing, no matter how terrible the nature of what you look upon. Among the gifts bestowed by the novel art form of photography, the diminishment of villains was surely not the least important. However, even by the standards of his day, the crimes of Fenton Fant, known far and wide simply as the Fiend, were sufficiently horrible, so utterly depraved as to mark his eventual capture by Fort Smith authorities as the sort of joyful communal victory typically known only at the conclusion of a long and arduous pilgrimage or the cessation of a particularly bloody conflict. The story of Fant's imminent demise was eagerly reported in every newspaper in the country, and dancing supposedly erupted in the streets of cities, from San Francisco to Boston. But there was no portrait to accompany the glad tidings. Even as they reveled in Fant's death sentence, the public could not envision the man said to be responsible for such considerable horrors. So he lingered in their minds like the very specter of death. He gnawed at their thoughts like the wages of sin. He reigned over their nightmares surely as Satan commands Inferno. Fant's cultural stature seemed only to increase upon capture and sentencing, because despite his infamy, the prolific thief and serial arsonist unrepentant killer of at least two dozen men, women, and children, had somehow never been photographed. Attempts were made during his brief trial 
but Fant was never witnessed being still outside the courtroom for the time required to make a decent exposure. And in response to the frenzied media attention and limited capacity of the building, photographers were barred from attending the proceedings. People began to talk. Long had it been suspected the fiend was not merely another deranged killer. His crimes were just too ghastly. Surely the kind of creature capable of such horrendous acts, a being who apparently could not even be photographed, must be a supernatural entity masquerading as a man, or, at the very least, a man possessed by demonic forces. There were some who insisted such a monster could not be executed. Doubts flowed beneath the people's relief, eroding claims of sheriffs and marshals and judges and politicians hurrying to assure the fretful public they lived in a country where goodness and justice inevitably won out. So it was finally on the eve of Fant's execution by hanging that Annabelle Blake visited his prison cell with the intention of making history and setting straight the record. She came to photograph the fiend. Upon order of the sheriff, she was escorted into the small antechamber outside the cell reserved for condemned prisoners, the place where they passed the final day of their life, enjoyed a special meal, and were permitted, should they desire, a visit from the local priest. Beyond the cell was a straight wooden chair beneath a high-barred window, through which floated a warm breeze, the golden light of a summertime evening. Having eaten his last supper of steak, potatoes, and chocolate cake, possessing no family or friends, and having requested no visit from the clergy, Fant was surprised at the arrival of a guest, let alone such a comely woman, and one burdened by so much strange equipment besides. Annabelle put down her things, stepped within reach of the cell's bars, and met the prisoner's gaze with the same cool professionalism she employed when dealing with her more demanding clients. Knowing the only tact which promised success in such a situation was immediate confidence. Mr. Fant, I understand the sheriff has already spoken with you in regards to having your portrait made this evening. You are the painter? The fiend, seated on his bunk, leaned forward, elbows on his knees, and regarded Annabelle with a smirk. For a moment I thought better of the people of Fort Smith. The food was decent enough. Even I never dared hope for the company of a whore on my last night among the living. My name is Annabelle Blake, and I am neither whore nor painter. A short and wiry woman with a pleasantly lined face and long chestnut hair, which she wore that day, as usual, tightly braided. Annabelle locked eyes with the killer in the cage. Is that not an easel? Fant pointed one thin finger at the collapsed wooden support she had leaned against the room's far wall. In a manner of speaking, I am a photographer, Mr. Fant, and I intend to capture your likeness with my camera. I was not aware there existed lady photographers. 
Fence stood and moved forward, reaching out with both hands to grasp the bars, slowly closing his strangly fingers around the metal which held him prisoner. Annabelle could not help but think of how many throats those fingers had throttled, how many triggers they'd pulled, all the fires they had set. Fant looked too young to have accomplished so many awful things. He was tall and skeletal, face smooth and unblemished beneath a mop of thick black hair. The eyes in that smooth face, though, were ancient and cold. The eyes of a rattlesnake, Annabelle thought. My husband and I own a studio and gallery here in Fort Smith. He took ill with a fever two winters past and died. I am now the sole proprietor. Oh, life, Fant sighed wearily, though his cruel smile remained. He is often unfair. So I understand. Let us be frank with each other. Annabelle moved back to her equipment and began to unpack. The sheriff, a close friend of my late husband, has promised you a bottle of good whiskey with which you might pass the night more enjoyably if you follow my instructions exactly and allow your portrait to be made. Is that correct? I was not told you would use a camera or that you were a woman. Life, Annabelle said, placing the camera on its mount, is often unfair. So I understand, Fant chuckled. Do you want the whiskey or not, Mr. Fant? Having spent all afternoon in this room listening to them erect and test the gallows from which they will hang me tomorrow. Yes, I want the whiskey. It is my hope to walk to that noose in the morning with an ache in my head so severe that death will seem a relief. Annabelle nodded absently, focused on her equipment. By my calculations, the evening sunlight will come through that window most directly in approximately 20 minutes. Will you sit perfectly still for at least 60 seconds when I instruct you to? It will perhaps take slightly longer. This room is quite dark. Your hair is beautiful, Aunt said. It reminds me of a girl I knew in Texas several years ago. She was the daughter of a marshal who vowed to hunt me down. I cut off her head and stuck it on a sharp fence post, then set fire to their house with her mother and little brother tied up inside. Annabelle met his gaze again. She did not flinch. Will you sit, Mr. Fant? He moved slowly back to his bunk and did as she asked, saying quietly, I would very much like a drink now. One drink up front. That is not unreasonable. Annabelle called the guard outside and asked him to bring the prisoner a cup of whiskey. She then went about setting up her camera, instructing Fant to remain seated on the bunk, as he would not be allowed out of the cell prior to marching to the gallows. It seemed the best place in which to pose him so as to ensure the least amount of movement on his part. As she ducked beneath the black cloth to better frame the photograph and establish proper focus, Fant drank in moody silence, which suited Annabelle fine. 
Her interest in the man did not extend beyond how his form interacted with light and shadow. Finally, as the crucial moment drew near, she took from her case the box containing the first of her prepared plates and inserted it into the rear of the camera. Have you ever posed for this contraption? Fant looked mournfully into his empty cup. I have, many times. My husband and I often practiced exposure conditions and development techniques using one another as models. Fant cast a slitted gaze onto the camera. I once had myself an Indian woman who said that such a device will steal a person's immortal soul if they stand before its eye. Yes. Annabelle looked at the window and reached for the lens cap. I have heard such superstitions as well. Compose yourself, Mr. Fant. We're about to begin the first exposure. When they have burned the suit and buried the corpse, Fant grinned. I guess you will have all that remains of me. Guard it well, ma'am. Of course, my dear sweet mother always said I was born without a soul. So perhaps my concern is needless. But that silly woman also thought having birthed me into this disgusting world might grant her some measure of reprieve once I'd taken it in mind to kill her. She was wrong on that score. So who can say what will happen with regards to the other? Annabelle removed the cap. Be still now, Mr. Fant. Her equipment was somehow heavier when leaving than upon arrival, as if the images themselves had weight. But even burdened as she was, in her heart, Annabelle soared. It had worked. She knew, despite the gloomy conditions of the room and Fant's incessantly twitching fingers, she had adjusted for proper exposure and captured the likeness of the fiend. After the first photograph was completed, she'd quickly exchanged the box for another containing a fresh plate. One more time, she explained. That should suffice. Fant remained inhumanly still except for those terrible fingers drumming on his pant legs, moving as if of their own accord. I must hope, he said, the executioner is more efficient. Having completed two exposures and left Fenton with his precious bottle, Annabelle confidently followed the deputy outside, where she was met by the sheriff. He was a short man with a gray and beard, prominent belly, and bushy eyebrows. It went good, he asked. Yes, thank you again. And will you come tomorrow, Annie, and make a picture of me and the boys with the body? I have not forgotten our agreement, William. Oh, that's fine, just fine. Many photographers have asked to come and make pictures, you know. But I've given strict instructions. You will be the only one allowed to document the event. I expect newspapers all over the country will be wanting to feature such images as these, considering fence so very notorious and all. And you'll be quite famous for having photographed the lawman who captured the fiend. We'll both be celebrated, I think. Don't you agree they'll be interested? 
I certainly do, William. But will you tell them, I wonder, that Mr. Fant was passed out drunk when you came upon him accidentally? Now, Andy, that ain't rightly fair. Recently, I was reminded that life is often unfair. Good night. I had thought perhaps I might escort you home. Good night, William. G good night, Annie. I'll see you tomorrow for the big show. Governor himself is going to come out and watch. And I hear people all the way from Boston done come to town for it. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Impossible. The word seared itself into her brain like a cattleman's red-hot iron pressed to the haunch of a steer. And yet, Annabelle stood in her lab, icy sweat glazing her body despite the room's stifling temperature and stared in shock and disbelief at the plates. From all three, the figure of Fenton Thant was somehow missing. The rest of each scene was clear and sharp. The stark prison cell with its bars, bunk, and brick wall appeared on the first two plates. The sheriff and his men were gathered beneath the scaffold on the third, crowded on either side of a taut rope whose end was fashioned into a noose. But the rope suspended no corpse, as it certainly had when Annabelle made the picture. And the cell held no prisoner, though she had stood in the room herself and knew that Fant had not moved from that bed during exposure. Impossible. Again, the word blazed in her mind. Outside, she heard carriages and horses moving on the street. The rantings of Freddie Tyler, notorious town drunk, as he staggered from one saloon to another. But those everyday realities seemed far away and meaningless compared to the inconceivable moment in which she had found herself. Stunned, she groped for explanations. Annabelle knew light leaking into the camera could wreck an image. She could have an improperly prepared plate or a miscalculation in the development process. 
pictures not fixed with the correct mixture of sodium theosulfate did disappear in time, but such an error would have destroyed the entire image, not just in one figure. Regardless, she did not think such mistakes were to blame. Annabelle prepared the plates herself, made the exposures, and performed the development. She was a meticulous photographer, having been trained exhaustively by her late husband, a true master of the craft. She had garnered a sterling reputation of her own since his passing, becoming quite renowned for the quality of her prints. No, it was simply impossible. Annabelle was aware of the sensation being caused all over the country by so-called spirit photographers. She knew one especially controversial photographer had been put on trial for creating such images. Photography was still viewed by many as equal parts art and sorcery. To preserve for eternity the likenesses of those deceased or render permanent the perpetually changing image previously seen only in a mirror. These powers were still considered the domain of witchcraft, even as the popularity of having one's portrait made increased, so robust was the demand that most cities boasted numerous studios. Many remained wary of the art form's perceived occult implications, but whether they were humbug or true ghostly manifestations, Spirit photographs were remarkably precise for featuring additional figures who were not present at the time of exposure. What kind of devilry, Annabelle wondered, could possibly disappear a flesh-and-blood person who had most definitely been there? She looked at the space where the fiend ought to appear. Even now, she knew the sheriff's men were burying Fant's corpse in a lonesome hilltop cemetery. There could be no question he was deceased. She had witnessed him hung, seen his body dangle in the noose. Annabelle put the plates in the cabinet and vowed to think of them no more. She would tell the sheriff she had made a mistake, that she had been too frightened upon being left alone with the fiend to make correct exposures. The execution, too, had been too much for her. Better be thought a silly woman overtaken by emotion and endure William's condescending headshakes and clumsy condolences, the sneers and jests of her professional rivals, than consider the potential alternatives. And that is what she did. Annabelle put away her plates and made her excuses, went back to work, and gave not another thought to the strange disappearing figure of Fenton Fant. That is, until, as suddenly and inexplicably as he had vanished, the fiend reappeared. It was an ideal day for a picnic. A bright and blustery Sunday afternoon, the blue sky dotted by fluffy clouds. Annabelle sat back on the blanket, turned her face to the sun, and closed her eyes as the wind swept through her hair which today she wore unbound. Virgil Claiborne tore himself from the side of her with no little effort and proffered a basket. Care for more? The tall grass of the field in which they had parked Annabelle's wagon made a comforting sound as it waved in the breeze, and their horse casually nibbled at a nearby patch. 
Annabelle slowly opened her eyes to regard her companion. He was several years younger than she, with the kind of ruddy boyish face helplessly dominated by large eyes and made all the more childlike by a mustache he had carefully cultivated specifically to foster an image of maturity. I will grow too round for my clothes. She reached for the smallest slice. But you do make the most wonderful cornbread, Virgil. I would make it for you more often. He smiled shyly. But my duties at the studio occupy much of my time. My employer, she is quite demanding. She is a tyrant. Annabelle laughed, brushing crumbs from her dress. That is not the word I would use. I wonder, perhaps. Or angel. Virgil blushed at his own uncharacteristic directness, rosy face reddening to nearly match the blanket on which they sat. The boy had begun his foray into the photographic arts as an assistant in her studio nearly a year ago, chronic asthma having kept him from the railroad work traditionally done by men in his family. Quickly he had advanced to the role of technician and was beginning to experiment with making pictures of his own. That day, Annabelle had indulged his enthusiasm, assisting Virgil in establishing the proper focus for several beautiful scenes of nature as they rode lazily about the countryside, bustle of the studio and city forgotten for a time. Annabelle leapt to her feet and began to remove from the wagon her photographic equipment. What are you doing? Virgil asked. I would have a portrait of you to commemorate such a lovely day. Stay sitting just there. And then she went about carefully composing and exposing the very photograph, though she'd have no idea until the following day in which the fiend would make his grisly return. Virgil Claiborne was found murdered in the lot behind Annabelle's studio early the next morning. He'd been gutted with his own knife, mouth filled with mud, also, his male parts had been removed and remained missing. As the boy was working late and the studio door found a jar, Annabelle was made to conduct a thorough search of the premises to ascertain if anything was stolen. She had found everything unchanged, save the addition of the plates of Virgil's landscapes from the prior days out and having been carefully arranged in the lab. He had said he wanted them ready to show her first thing in the morning, and she left him at the studio to work unsupervised, as he asked. He was very eager to demonstrate for her his increase in technical prowess. With a debilitating wave of regret, Annabelle realized she'd never again share the lab with Virgil. She looked more closely at the plates and noted upon each something like a slash or scratch, a shape she could almost mistake for a human figure if she was not certain no such person had been present. Fighting to hold back tears, she moved on to examine the plate containing the picnic portrait, the sight of which caused her momentarily to fear she had abandoned her senses completely. There was Virgil on the blanket, smiling sweetly at her, just as he had done. One of his hands was placed atop the knife sheathed on his belt. The handsome blade, the very weapon which would, just hours later, end his life so violently, had been a gift from her to celebrate his promotion. 
All appeared as it should, except crouching beside Virgil was another person. Annabelle held the plate in trembling hands and looked in horror at the unmistakable figure of Fenton Fant. Clad in his dark funeral suit, the man's long spindly arms and legs had somehow stretched longer still, not marishly so. He reached forward with spidery fingers for Virgil's knife. A terrible grin was slashed into his pale face and Fant's eyes were bottomless pools of blackness. Annabelle dropped the plate, saw it shatter on the floor, but heard no sound. She staggered, the room swimming around her, barely managing to make her way back to the studio, the waiting sheriff and his deputies before collapsing into a heap, shuddering and vomiting. It was promptly agreed by all the men present the lady was hysterical. She was taken home and a doctor sent for. Later, her sedated ramblings about murderous apparitions and ghostly portraits were politely overlooked by all. Returning to the studio days later, Annabelle went immediately outside with her camera and was seen by several curious onlookers photographing the vacant lot in which Virgil was found. It seemed to random passers-by the erratic behavior of a traumatized woman, and decent citizens hurried by all the more quickly. Those who suspected photography was little more than a ruse by which the devil hoped to ensnare the weak nodded solemnly, their distrust justified. She made pictures of tools leaned against a building on the lot's opposite side. She photographed the street, careful to capture no pedestrians in the frame. Finally, hesitating only slightly, seeing Freddie Tyler passed out asleep in the shade cast by a nearby pile of lumber, Annabelle made a portrait of the drunken scoundrel. Tyler, long suspected of killing his wife, was a public menace who spent what little time he enjoyed outside of jail wreaking intoxicated havoc on the city of Fort Smith. He had more than once exposed himself to Annabelle and invited her to make a picture of this, you whore. Back in her lab, Annabelle again went about developing the pictures, enacting the incredible alchemical knowledge imparted by her late husband. She exposed each plate and the latent image it held to mercury fumes in the special box. After revealing the picture, she felt as always a shiver of thrill. Such magic defied logic, and yet she understood it completely and drew power from comprehending the importance of every aspect of the ritual. She began the fixing process, washing away the light-sensitive silver thus preventing it from further reacting to daylight and fading the picture. Then she gently rinsed the plates, studying each image with resignation, viewing them now as a professional problem to be solved rather than new horrors to be endured. Because Annabelle's late husband also instilled in her the special joy known only upon the precise mastering of a difficult task, she summoned that disciplined mindset, even as her darkest suspicions, insane as they may be, were borne out. In the first image, she saw Fant with the tools, again wearing his black suit. 
His long fingers closed around the pickaxe as he looked into the lens with obvious joy. In the next, Vance strolled the empty street, jauntily using the pickaxe as a walking stick. He cast no shadow, though the placement of the sun dictated he ought, and his jaw was stretched impossibly wide, front teeth long and sharp like a viper's fangs. On each hand, his nails had grown into talons. Annabelle applied the secondary solution used to improve the stability and contrast of an image, then proceeded to gently heat each plate with a candle flame so as to bring out the different tones as completely and subtly as possible. In the final picture, Fance stood over the savaged corpse of Freddie Tyler, gore-caked pickaxe slung casually over one shoulder. Tyler was little more than bloody mulch at his feet, a gruesome exhibit barely recognizable as the remains of a man at first glance. Within the mound of gore, Annabelle saw five enormous maggots, each grinning back at her with a miniature version of Fant's own face. Annabelle moved slowly into the studio and sunk into a plush chair beneath one of the larger windows. Eyes closed, she turned her face up to the burnt orange light of evening. As the escalating commotion audible beyond the confines of the room told her the murder of Freddie Tyler had been discovered. Even a lawman so diligently devoted to ignorance as William could not dismiss two gruesome murders in the same location in so short a period of time. Not that his efforts at conducting a thorough search revealed anything of importance. Still, the attention of so many newspaper reporters and the mob of outraged citizens vying for his attention made it easy for Annabelle to coax from the distracted man the loan of a pistol. Far more difficult was enduring without comment the unnecessary and unrequested shooting lesson he insisted on administrating, and throughout which he stood far too close to her. The following day, at the hour when the sun most perfectly filled the studio, Annabelle emptied the room of all furnishings and potential weapons and stood before the camera. Always before, she noted, the fiend utilized photographed objects in the commission of his awful deeds. This time, there was only the pistol which she held tightly, loaded, raised, and aimed at the camera. She focused her considerable power of concentration on destroying Fenton Thant. Judging the appropriate time had elapsed, she replaced the lens cap and took the pistol and box containing the exposed plate into the lab so as to once again conduct the ritual of development. She put from her mind the surreal nature of the situation, the insanity of her actions, thinking instead of Virgil's sweet smile and the peculiar satisfaction she'd long enjoyed within her lab. The sense of control and purpose she associated with the chemicals and procedure were comforts stolen from her by the greedy refusal of Fant to comply with the established rules of life and death, right and wrong. As she waited for the mercury fumes to bring forth the latent image, Annabelle heard scraping footsteps on the floor behind her. Faint initially, then louder. 
resting a hand lightly on the pistol which lay on the table beside her. Annabelle focused on the box and marking time, ignoring the harsh gasping breath of the intruder as she waited for fate to fill the frame of glass with the past she had captured, perhaps revealing the future she had earned. The footsteps grew nearer. Annabelle could feel heat radiating from the body behind her as the coppery reek of fresh blood filled the room, the acrid tang of gun smoke. Her hand abandoned the pistol and returned to the work it preferred. She removed the plate and began the fixing process, staring down at herself on the glass in wonder, as if seeing her own visage for the first time, while the scene became clear. A hand fell onto her shoulder. Heavy despite its seemingly delicate fingers, each so long and thin, sharp nails dug painfully into Annabelle's flesh. From behind the photographer, a voice thick with boundless rage and pain whispered from somewhere beyond time into her ear. One more time. That should suffice. The sound of the pistol's hammer being cocked was deafening. Talk about getting the big picture. That was Fill the Frame by author Luciano Moreno. I tell you what, I'd send that fucking camera right back to B&H. A little about the author. Luciano Moreno is an award-winning writer and photographer. He's the author of a trilogy of werewolf novellas, The Ambush Moon Cycle, and numerous works of short fiction which have appeared in anthologies such as Year's Best Hardcore Horror, The Best New Weird Horror, Monsters, Movies, and Mayhem, and Crash Code, among others, as well as Night Script, Pseudopod, Chthonic Matters Quarterly, and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. His written and photographic reporting has earned a number of industry accolades, and he was twice named the Feature Writer of the Year by the Washington Newspaper Publishers Association. A U.S. Navy veteran, originally from rural western Pennsylvania, he now resides near Seattle. Thanks, Luciano. And for our second story tonight, we welcome back the illustrious Gray Walker. You might remember the Condemned from Episode 3 this season in which condemned bounty hunter Jack Abernathy sought to redeem himself by delivering evil souls to hell. This one's a prequel to that story, and a good excuse to revisit Season 4, Episode 3 afterward. So, without further delay, I give you, from author Gray Walker, The Condemned, The Broker, The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. 
connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. It wasn't an ideal place to do business by any stretch. This circle of hell was filthy, a heap of scum, blood, and bodies crammed into an ugly parody of a city. Still, he often found that the most promising business partners were housed here, promising as well as interesting. The broker's well-polished shoes clacked against the ground, the blood and other unsavory substances not leaving a stain on them. He nonetheless hoped that none of the bodies he passed would decide to revive as he passed them. An unreasonable concern, he knew, but people didn't appreciate just how hard it was to get fine clothing like this, let alone maintain it. He reached into a pocket of his jacket and removed the piece of paper with the name of his prospective contractor. On the paper were the neatly typed bold words. Case file number 182,099,125. Jack Abernathy. Vices. Patricide. Victim, Earl Abernathy. Wartime murder, arson. Motive not provided. Approximate souls required for redemption. Redacted. He whistled. Interesting indeed. He had enlisted the work of souls who had done far worse things, but he had read the paperwork on Earl beforehand. The fact that his son was in hell along with him didn't seem too fair. At least he hoped Jack might think so. He found it easier to recruit souls who felt cheated, craving compensation for injustice, wanting to return to Earth for one reason or another. Folding the paper up and putting it in the same pocket, he continued to stroll down the road, his hands folded behind his back. Suddenly, one of the men who was lying on the ground grabbed at his pant leg and brandished a knife, though he barely had time to let out a triumphant ha before he was consumed by flame. He didn't make a noise, being immolated too quickly to register the pain of being burned to death. Looking down at the greasy handprint on his trousers, the broker groaned in disgust, then snapped his fingers. Just like that, the stain was gone, along with the vermin that had left it there. Given a spiteful kick to the pile of ashes, he then continued walking. Sunday school hadn't been completely honest about hell likely on account of never paying a visit. There was fire, yes, but it didn't look all that different from Earth. He had been told that due to the murder of his father, he would be sentenced to live in an upper circle. It was no picnic. Murder and brawls all over petty things were common here, though the dead always returned after the fact. Still, apparently it was better than what his father was going through. His father was a son of a bitch, but murder was murder in the eyes of his judges, especially patricide. But at the very least, he knew his father was suffering worse. Jack had been on the side of a road, a bottle of alcohol in his hand, 
and the dead man he had stabbed to be able to get it. All around, the sky was blood red, and the blood from the ceaseless brawling seemed to paint the ground to match. Instead of a sun, there was flame in the sky, disorganized scarlet flame from which new souls fell in daily, if not hourly. As he drowned himself in cheap whiskey, Jack noticed other sinners like himself running like scared rats. The man looked over the burned, scrawny sinner, then shook his head and clicked his tongue. Now this simply won't do, he said in a sympathetic tone, as if looking at a starving dog. The fuck you want? Jack slurred through his scraggly beard, trying to stand up, succeeding after three tries and wobbling slightly even after he was up. Unfazed, the man replied, Call me the broker. I'm here on the behalf of a certain individual who claims to see something special in you, Mr. Abernathy. Growling at the use of his father's surname, Jack drunkenly snarled, spit flying from his lips. If you want to call me anything, you call me Jack, you hear? As you wish, Jack, the man conceded, removing a handkerchief from his pocket and wiping his face nonchalantly. I'll cut to the chase. I know that you have been sentenced here for cold-blooded but admittedly justifiable murder. Your father was quite distasteful, or so I've been told. However, my client is inclined to offer you a probation of sorts. Follow the directions given to you and the client is willing to allow your sentence to be nullified. Hearing this caused Jack to sober up somewhat. A thin smile appeared on the broker's face. Hmm, I thought that would get your attention. As you can probably imagine, however, the client will not be given this for free. You must- Everything valuable from your pockets on the ground now! yelled some man who had apparently snuck up behind him and was aiming a pistol at the broker's head. Do you mind, good sir, he said in a mildly exasperated tone. I am trying to have a conversation with a perspective. Prospective nothing. There ain't nobody in this circle who dresses like that and ain't wealthy. If you know what's good for you, you'll hand over everything in your pockets. The broker sighed, then held a finger up to Jack as if to tell him to wait. He then turned around to face his attacker. That's more like it, the other man said. Now, just please be quiet, the broker interjected. Instantly, the man's lips snapped shut. His face went from confusion to outright horror as he tried to pry his lips open with his fingers. Now, continued the broker. Please lower that weapon. His arm hung limp at his side, and he looked at it with wide eyes as the appendage moved on its own accord. The broker stood there, facing the man placidly. Point your gun at your temple, please. The broker said chillingly, his voice polite and dignified as ever, but with a hint of annoyance. To the shock and horror of both Jack and the man, the man's arm moved naturally and took aim at his head. Now, pull the trigger and do be kind enough as to not get blood on my suit. Or my would-be business partner, please. There was no hesitation, but there was fear in the man's eyes. He pulled the trigger, and with a loud crack, 
The other side of his head erupted into a veritable geyser of blood, bone, and brain matter before he collapsed. Turning back around, he resumed speaking. I am sorry about that. Now, where were we? You was saying something about the client not giving this for free? Jack said warily, both in shock at the death and at the broker's demeanor despite it. Ah, of course. The broker explained that Jack would not be allowed into heaven at once. The client would allow him to walk upon the earth and provide him with a series of targets consisting of exceptionally sinful men and the occasional rogue demons. He would choose whom to kill among these individuals, and their souls would be delivered to the client by the broker. For every soul delivered, he would be closer to having his own soul cleansed of his wrongdoing. Of course, the values of certain souls may, um, fluctuate. Sometimes the bounty given might be lesser or greater than when it was initially provided. I would suggest you mitigate this problem by going after targets with groups, gangs, and the like. The souls of optional kills will provide a small bonus. Jack listened. By now, his inebriation was completely gone. In addition, I may grant you certain privileges to help with this. All you need to do is sign here. He removed the piece of paper and a pen. Before you do that, though, do read it carefully. The client gets rather annoyed by accusations of being a cheat because business partners fail to read the fine print. Take your time. You may need it to think this over. Jack read the paper several times. The contract said the same thing the broker had told him with the exception of stating that he would lack human needs like food, water, and sleep. The only other oddity was that the contract repeatedly referred to the signer as the condemned. Besides that, he saw no double meanings, no loopholes, no tricks. As much as he was suspicious of both the broker and the client, he thought back to Abigail. He had loved her deeply when she was enslaved on the plantation. He had known how his paw would feel if he found out. That was why he had released her in secret, or so he thought. That was why he had told her to go north, to wait for him there. That was why he had so foolishly sworn Bill to secrecy. And that was why he was so horrified when he saw his beloved Abigail on Bill's horse. Her beautiful face now purple, bloody, and swollen. It seemed like she was trying to say something through the hysterical cries of her mother begging Bill to punish her instead, before he put a bullet in the girl's skull. Jack? The broker's calm voice broke through his reverie. Not realizing tears had begun to fall down his cheeks, Jack wiped them away, then said to the broker in a quiet but seething tone, Just one thing. My older brother, Bill, is he still alive? As it happens, yes, the broker replied. He had expected this question. Should you take this offer, I may discuss some things with the client. Have him pull a few strings to keep him alive until you reach him. Hearing this, 
A malicious smile began to creep over Jack's face. His hand never worked so fast as he wrote his signature on the paper. We have a bargain then, said the broker. And just like that, the hellscape around him vanished, replaced by a desert. Looking around, he realized that as hot as it was, he felt almost nothing, despite the duster and gloves on his hands. Wait. He looked again at his clothes. The ragged shirt and filthy breeches were replaced by a long red duster, black gloves, and a dark brown hat. What do you think? The broker's voice asked from behind him, giving him a start. Does the outfit suit you well enough? Can't complain, but... He noticed his voice was gravelier now. He tried clearing his throat, but it didn't change. Well, did you expect to not have your voice altered by the smoke of hellfire? The broker asked sardonically. Don't worry, you can change your voice at will. That's one of the benefits of the coat, you see. And remember how the contract said you would be free of mortal needs like pain and hunger? That's the coat's function. It'll keep you walking even if you take on an entire gang of trigger-happy bandits. There are other functions and abilities it provides, but I shall let you discover them on your own. Then the broker produced an ornate box from his saddlebag. He opened it to reveal two revolvers one seemingly silver-plated with the design of a snarling wolf, the other made from an unnaturally dark metal and possessing the design of a serpent. These are your service weapons, so to speak. You may use other weapons at your leisure, but for your main targets you will use these. The silver one, Fenrir, is to be used on mortals to condemn their souls to hell. The black one, Nedog, shoots rounds containing hellfire. This is to be used against demons alone unless authorized. I can't stress that enough. You'll find that holsters and ammunition have already been provided for you. He gestured to Jack's sides, where two holsters were indeed resting on his belt. Placing the pistols inside, the broker then said, And one last thing. He whistled, and a gray horse suddenly trotted into view, nickering softly. This is Smokey. He's to be your guide to the souls. All you need to do is whisper the name of your contract in his ear, and he'll know the way to them. Smokey nudged Jack's arm in an almost affectionate manner, and despite himself, Jack gave a small smile and patted the horse on the head. Seems he's taken a liking to you already, the broker remarked. He then clasped his hands together. Now then, to business. As it happens, I already have a potential assignment for you, should you choose to accept. Mind you, he's sort of a practice target, hence his low value. A piece of paper appeared in the broker's hand which he handed to Jack. It showed a picture of a sneering man with a thin mustache whose face likened to one of a weasel. 
The words above the picture read Micah Lemoyne, soul value, one half. Vices, 30 counts of murder, fratricide, betrayal, theft, arson, disturbance of peace, desertion of comrades. Christ almighty, this guy got any hobbies? Jack exclaimed at the sight of his record. With the exception of fratricide, those are his hobbies, the broker said dryly. Well, Jack, what do you say? I know that it may be a bit too soon to ask you to- I'm ready, Jack said without hesitation, taking the broker by surprise. They usually needed time to readjust to life on Earth. I'll put this bastard in the ground now. He then approached the steed before whispering his target's name in his ear. Instantly, Smokey's eyes glowed scarlet, and he made an odd noise that sounded as if it were a mix between a whinny and a growl, to Jack's surprise. The broker snapped his fingers, prompting another horse to appear, this one a snowy white, which he quickly mounted. Happy hunting then, Jack. He tipped his hat to the condemned, yeah. then rode off and vanished. With that, Jack did the same, then urged his horse on. He moved with a speed impossible for any normal horse, and he needed no build-up, going from stationary to lightning fast in a heartbeat. As the broker had said, it was clear that Smokey knew where he was going and needed no direction. Letting a small smirk play on his lips, he readied himself for the oncoming encounter with his first target. Yeah. Micah's weasel face sneered hideously beneath his bandana as he looked over the bodies of the man and the woman in the stagecoach. It had really been too easy, disguising himself as their driver, then killing their guard before turning his revolver on them. Should've just handed over your money, he said rhetorically. Wouldn't have had this problem. It was a lie, of course, and he knew it. He'd have shot those stuck-up rich folks one way or the other. Well, maybe not the woman. He could have held her for ransom, kept her in his hideout, treat her well, let her slowly fall in love with him. He pushed that from his mind. All the other women he had held for ransom never fell for him just as it had been before he turned to a life of crime. No matter how nice he acted to the girls when he was a schoolboy, none paid him any mind. No, he would have just killed her anyway. He opened up the back of the coach, spitting on the body of the coach guard, removing their luggage and searching through it, taking as much money as he could find. That was when he heard hooves approaching. Turning frantically, he saw a man on a gray horse, clad in a red duster, and his face covered in old burns. And were the horse's eyes red? He blinked and the red eyes were gone. Must have been a trick of the sunlight shining off the stranger's coat. You get going now, he exclaimed, grabbing his gun and aiming at the stranger. I ain't sure where you come from, but this here's my hall. You want to go home to your wife and kids safely, you'll turn around and head back the way you came. That was also a lie. He knew he couldn't risk someone reporting a stolen stagecoach, 
even if his face was covered. Jack chuckled, shaking his head. <laughs> Sorry, Micah, but only one of us is leaving this place. And it ain't gonna be you, he said, surprised at his sudden change in attitude. He attributed it to the coat's properties already having an effect on him. Taken aback that the stranger knew his name, Micah aimed the pistol at Jack. You get down off that horse, you'll be pushing up daisies, you hear? Undeterred, Jack stepped down. No sooner had he touched the ground did the gun go off. He felt the impact of the bullet, felt it tear through his clothes, skin, tissue, and bone. He was instantly blown back. Micah approached the stranger and began to rifle through his coat. Surely someone with a coat as opulent as this would have something valuable. A flicker of motion caught his eye. Glancing up, he saw a sight that shocked him. The stranger was grinning. Not the content smile of a man who was looking for death, but the grin of a man who realized death no longer had any hold on him. As if that wasn't enough, his chest began to shake from barely restrained laughter. Then without warning, the stranger's hand shot upward, grabbing Micah by the throat. Jack stood up, lifting the bandit off the ground as he struggled feebly, his eyes filled with sheer unbridled terror and disbelief. The stranger bled, but even now he could see the blood returning to the wound it had leaked from, with the said wound beginning to close. He threw the bandit with ease, causing him to land on his back. As he recovered from the pain, he glanced up to see the man in red stalking closer to him, his grin vulpine and filled with malice as he felt his target's sins flow into him, wrapped in a layer of cowardice. He couldn't explain how or why, but the feelings of his evil deeds and the knowledge that they would be very quickly avenged filled him with an odd sense of euphoria. Micah began backing up quickly, panicked breaths escaping him. <laughs> the money's yours! He yelled desperately, throwing several stacks of bills to the stranger. <laughs> Take all of it! I ain't gonna do nothing to stop you! Just, just please let me go! Jack stooped to pick up one of the stacks, and for just a moment, a relieved expression crossed Micah's face. It melted away, however, when the money began burning in his gloved hand. The fire's glow making his grinning, scarred face that much more blood-curdling. Micah whimpered, knowing his fate was sealed. <laughs> who, who in the hell are you? He squeaked out. What did I ever do to you? Laughing ghoulishly, Jack drew Fenrir from the holster. <laughs> Doesn't matter who I am, but seeing as you'll be dead soon anyway, just call me Jack. And you did nothing to me. This here ain't no matter of revenge, grudges, nothing like that. It's just business. What, what kind of business? Micah asked timidly. 
Jack raised Fenrir. Call it collection, he said in his guttural voice. He noticed the bandit glancing at his own revolver, which had flown from the holster after he had been thrown. Making a gesture towards the firearm, Jack's grin widened. Go on, Micah, Jack's eyes seemed to say. Take that gun. Fire it at the man who just stood up after taking a round to the chest. Fire at the man who just burned your money in his hand. Who knows? Maybe that first time was just a one-off. Maybe you'll actually be able to kill me. Here, I'll even aim away from you. Go ahead. Do it. Do it. Micah took the dare, then grabbed the gun and aimed it at Jack, pulling the trigger with a desperate cry. The chamber was empty. He didn't count the bullets after his robbery. Eyes widening, he let out a final shriek of horror and despair. Jack aimed, then he pulled the trigger. Hell gladly welcomed Michael Lemoyne into its gates. And that was The Condemned, The Broker, by author Gray Walker. Again, if you haven't, check out the next in the storyline in Season 4, Episode 3. A little about the author. Gray Walker is a writer from Alabama, currently working on getting his M.A. in creative writing. His favorite genres of writing are sci-fi, fantasy, horror, or some mix between those. His main sources of literary inspiration include Stephen King, Frank Herbert of Dune fame, Isaac Asimov, and fellow Reddit authors Elias Witherow, C.K. Walker, Matt Demersky, and Mr. Outlaw. You can find more of his writing at thegraywalker.wordpress.com and on his Reddit account, which you can find a link to in the show notes. Thanks, Gray. And do old Drew Blood a favor, would you? Subscribe to his podcast wherever you do your listening and leave him a five-star review and a kind word, even if you're listening on YouTube. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all the other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click Patrons in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at chillintalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to their entire audio archive all ad-free and available to download or stream. Thank you for your time and for supporting our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you support this show. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all the latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with them each and every week. Oh, and you can find Drew Blood on Facebook and Instagram. The Drew Blood's Dark Tales podcast is accepting submissions, friend. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on the show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment, 10 bananas.
afraid this is where we part ways, at least till next week. So grab a drink for the road, friend. The road to perdition's a leisurely stroll. Just make sure you're back by next week. Hey, don't forget to go to patreon.com forward slash drewblood to become a patron and get access to some extra content and the ridiculous train wreck of a talk show between myself, Jeff Sturdivant, and Paul J. McSorley. It's a riot. So may the wind be at your back, and may the road rise up to meet you. Aw, oh, Chester, don't go tracking all that mud in here. All right, I gotta run. Oh, yeah, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Good night, y'all. Chester... Chester, come on, boy. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.